Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the stars align for cyber success at DHS. To have the DHS CIO and the CISA director in harmony on an approach is also, I think, a pretty good indication that this is important and where the department is headed. Some signs of progress in government industry dialogue. I am seeing the government reach into industry more and more to ask, hey, how do I get this? How do I get here? And the next phase in the Pentagon's digital evolution. The end point is a world-class AI and digital enterprise, a Department of Defense that is world-class, that is the best in software, the best in algorithms, the best in data. So it's always gonna be an evolution with different stages. It's Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Central Intelligence Agency has its first chief technology officer ever. Nan Mulchandani will join CIA from the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at the Defense Department. He served as CTO and acting director at the Jake. The Federal Highway Administration has a CTO for the first time, too. Artie Chin comes to FHA from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. He was Chief Digital Services Officer at HUD, among other IT leadership jobs. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Voting's open now for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote for them in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Homeland Security is sorting through about 122 cyber vulnerabilities. It learned about them through the Hack the DHS program. Chris Kemiski, CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions. He's former acting undersecretary for management at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Is this a good thing or a bad thing that they found 122 vulnerabilities? Welcome. Well, thanks, Francis. Uh, yeah, I think it is a good thing. I did receive some calls after the story started to pop on this saying, you know, do you really want to telegraph and, and make clear to the public that you've got all these vulnerabilities? Uh, but ultimately, I think that, you know, based on the, the Hack the Pentagon program that started in 2016, that overall what the services found and what I think DHS is finding is that it's better to know, uh, particularly in this uh, environment of Log4j and kind of persistent threats that are sitting on your networks, uh, knowing that they're there is probably a better thing than, than ignoring it. And these hack the fill in the blank programs, the people that run them always cite the cost factor involved. We spent less giving these uh, bug hunters rewards than we would have spent if we contracted with some cybersecurity company to come in and do a deep dive, a soak of the whole system and find these vulnerabilities. Is that maybe the most practical argument or is the most practical argument that these are challenging environments in which we operate and the software and websites that we use are present challenging environments and we got to basically throw every tool in the book at these yeah i think it's a pretty good investment i mean twenty one hundred twenty six thousand dollars uh on a budget of billions over at the department spent on cybersecurity. Uh, and also, I think the secondary benefit is the uh, strengthened relationship with the security researcher community. And anytime you can strengthen those ties and identify you know, 27 of the 122 as being critical vulnerabilities, uh, and then being able to actually execute against that and do something about it, 
uh, I think that's a pretty good return on investment. So that was the other number I wanted to ask you about as being good or bad that we know it. 27 out of the 122, as you said, 22%, almost a quarter of the vulnerabilities that the bug hunters found were critical vulnerabilities. Now, I'm using critical in air quotes. What's a critical vulnerability as opposed to a vulnerability in an organization like the Department of Homeland Security? It would strike me that any vulnerabilities at, at least not a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Vulnerabilities are a bad thing. Uh, but I think that the um, the distinction for them at CISA and, and CIO is uh, active exploit vulnerability, right? Something that's available uh, to be exploited uh, presently that you know can allow the hackers onto the network uh, and allow them to either you know create their own credentials or you know swim laterally across the organization. Uh, anything that's going to have that kind of an impact uh, is going to probably get higher attention. This is the first phase of a program that DHS is undertaking. What do you think the next phases following, maybe more after the three phases, uh, should look like, Chris? Yeah, I think that the phases two and three that they're planning are just as valuable. Uh, in phase one, they've got the identification of the vulnerabilities. Phase two, they're planning to have live uh, conversations and active dialogue with the uh, security researchers that identify the vulnerabilities. And then phase three is kind of this best practices compendium. And how do you build that back into future iterations of the bug bounty program? And so I think that when you have a system like that uh, functioning after the very first one, it, it puts in, in place a pretty good paradigm for success going forward. Over the time that I've been involved in this community, we've shifted cyber thinking from uh, we've got to protect everything and we've got to basically have uh, allow no hacks to we're going to be hacked and we need to figure out how to mitigate how to, how to minimize the damage from those hacks using that kind of model as a way to think about this will we ever get to zero will we ever get to no vulnerabilities or is learning about them as quickly as possible and trying to minimize the damage of those vulnerabilities the the more noble goal do you think yeah, I think you make an important distinction about the evolution of thinking in this space over the last 10 years or so. Uh, you know, originally it was very much perimeter defense. And you look at the, the programs that DHS built, like Einstein and, and CDM, were very much in that mantra. Uh, but over time, as it's moved to a zero trust kind of a philosophy, which is that you know that they're going to get in and how quickly you can mitigate and get them off the networks is really the the hallmark of, of the Biden administration's EO and, and what you're seeing as best practices today. What What's the next evolution of that, do you think? What do you see coming down the road? I mean, we talk about zero trust at this point in time till we're blue in the face, and it strikes me that that's great. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't or that it's not a valuable tool for cyber professionals and others to use, but it strikes me that if we sit still and we gaze at our navels about zero trust yeah. that yeah. we are going to miss out on an opportunity to continue to make progress, maintain momentum. No, I think that's true. And I think what zero trust points out, you know, people think of it either as a product sometimes or a philosophy that's being applied. Uh, but really for me, what I, one of the things that it calls out is the notion that legacy systems in the federal government are a real issue, right? They don't have the ability to pivot to a more secure framework or architecture um, as the newer systems do. And so for me, Zero Trust really points out that issue of, you know, you've got these systems that have got to migrate. There isn't really resourcing typically to do that um, because it's expensive. And so what can you do in the, in the meantime 
to advance a zero trust philosophy uh, that isn't going to be you know wholesale replacement of these systems. And so I think that what you're seeing is that coupled with speed, right? AI, uh, artificial intelligence, and, and machine learning is going to accelerate this game so quickly, along with quantum computing, is that over the horizon, you know, you wonder if you're going to take the tsunami and you're not going to be able to, to ever get out in front of it. So I think that's really where the future of this goes uh, in, the, in the coming uh, years. Yeah, what I worry about, about the idea of using a zero trust architecture, concept, philosophy, worldview, whatever you want to call it, against mm-hmm. legacy systems, Chris, is that we get to a good enough phase, given the resource yeah. constrictions that organizations, agencies are working against. That we go, well, we'd like to... We'd like to modernize it. We'd like to transform it, but we've applied zero trust to this legacy thing. So we'll we have some other priority over here. And I, it's not that those priorities aren't yeah. real. It's not that that risk management calculation isn't real. It's the it's it definitely is. But my fear is that it ends up kind of reducing or minimizing the urgency to transform these systems. Is that fair? Or am I worrying too much? No, I think that's right. You can't boil the ocean on this thing, right? You can't get to everything mm-hmm. uh, that you need to do with these systems. And that's why I think it needs to be coupled with a strong data management and infrastructure um, approach, um, like a DHS. They're going through this exercise of identifying all the data sets of the department, which is the first time it's been done in 10 years. And then they're going to go through and say, okay, what in that those data sets are the most um, important in terms of protection, and then looking at zero trust and other security measures and trying to apply it to the highest value assets first, and then moving on from there. All right, back to the hack the fill in the blank programs. Mm -hmm. Is measuring the amount of money we paid out or the amount of vulnerabilities that we found or uh, whatever, categorizing them by critical or not, is that the most effective way to judge success here? Or is maybe thinking about how to measure success, maybe not even the right way to think about it. No, I think that there's a, there are several beneficial measures of this. One is that you get some initial feedback about vulnerabilities. Uh, two, you strengthen that relationship with the researcher community, and which you really need to have in terms of a partnership. Uh, and probably third, you signal uh, to the broader private uh, ecosystem out there of, of cyber operators that the department is interested in having this dialogue and is working internally in tandem, which is not always the case, right? To have the DHS CIO and the CISA director in harmony on an approach is also, I think, a pretty good indication that this is important and where the department is headed. Chris Kemiski, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Fred. You can read more about Hack DHS in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming tomorrow, a new cyber and technology leader is on the way in one of DHS's components. The outgoing assistant commandant of the Coast Guard for C4IT and nominee for best boss in federal IT, Rear Admiral David Dermanalian is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. You can catch that exit interview tomorrow afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The CIOSP4 contract from the National Institutes of Health can move forward now. The Government Accountability Office dismissed the last two pre-award protests against the contract. Terry Halverson's general manager for the federal and public sector for IBM. He's former chief information officer of the Navy and for the Defense Department. Terry, welcome. It's great to see you again. Thanks for coming back on the program. 
I ask you not about the peculiarities of CIOSP4, but the general issue that your former agency is talking about, struggling with, focusing on, and that's speed. When these contracts come out, they don't quite make sense to the people that are bidding on them. They go to protest. The awards are delayed. That doesn't do anything for speed for people like you that are trying to get technology into a federal agency, does it, Terry? Welcome. Francis, uh, first of all, always good to see you and always good to be on these shows. Uh, I still think you do are the best at reporting in this market and ask the, the really good questions. So I, I think in, in your opening, you made, it, made a good point. It is certainly going to slow some things down. And, you know, this contract is not the only one that has slowed down. I think, though, what the reason for that is, is a recognition that the environment that agencies need, particularly in the federal space, is changing. I think there's recognition that while a lot of agencies felt like maybe, you know, given all the guidance that they had to move all their data to cloud, there is recognition now that, frankly, not all data needs to go to cloud. And it is not able, reality is it all can't go to cloud on the timeline that it was set out. I think they're starting to recognize that we really truly are in what I'm going to call a hybrid data fabric environment. And that is going to mean you're certainly going to have cloud. You're going to have more than one cloud. You're going to have multi-cloud. You're going to have modernized data centers or modernized mainframes. That has to be part of the solution. Mobile devices today, and we, we, we use the term edge device, but today a mobile device is an edge device. I mean, I, I happen to carry the Samsung Fold computer. I got a terabyte of storage and processing on that that's incredible. That's going to be part of your enterprise data fabric. So I think people are struggling with how to put that all in the contracts. All right, putting that all in the contracts when a contract is going to run five years, some of them are running 10 years. And I know everybody that I talk to that runs these contracts says, we have on-ramps, we have off-ramps, and so on. I understand that. Um, should we start to rethink the way we build these things from the ground up, Terry? Are we, are we trying to force 20th century contracting practices onto 21st, and in some cases headed toward 22nd already, century technologies? I'm going to say it this way. I think contracting tends to maybe lag technology somewhat. So I do think what we're seeing now is a recognition that there needs to be some changes in the contracting. I think one of the things we are seeing more is, you know this, the contracts even two, three years ago from the federal space, very, very specific technically on what they wanted. I think we saw some change and it was a little broader. I think now we're seeing really the attempt to write capability contracts. Um, that's going to take a little bit to get it right, um, but I think that is the right way to go. I think the jury's going to be out on can you write a, cap a five-year capability contract and make it work. What I what I tend to think is going to happen here, you're going to write these contracts. And in addition to all FRAMPs, they do have closure points. I think it won't be uncommon to see at the end of a three-year period, a, a rewritten 
contract come out and, and say, hey, listen, we're going to end this on this third or fourth year, and this is going to be the new vehicle. I, I think that is going to happen. Let's step back a minute and think about, I'm going to put you back in your CIO chair. And what think? tell me what makes sense for you from a contract, what you need a contract to do to perform well for you, not just on the day that it's awarded, but if it's a three-year term or a five-year term, what makes that thing still perform well three years or five years out that we are maybe are not baking in at the beginning to get us to the I, I, I'm, I'm at yeah. a loss as Terry as to how we continue to see the same struggles and the same themes over and over again. Yeah, I think I do think this is harder to do than it appears. Um, you and I have talked about this in the past, the pace of technology that it's changing. It, we keep thinking we're going to get it right. And it just keeps going faster and faster. Um, that makes this hard. You know, how do you how do you end up not buying legacy? So for me, I do think the focus on capabilities is correct. I think not being prescriptive, even with your capability solutions, and I really do think that we're seeing that emerge in the new contracts where it's, hey, I need to be able to have a, we talked about, we'll talk about data fabric today. What I, what do I want? I want a data fabric that is interwoven with all of the pieces that I need. So I need cloud and I need multiple cloud. I need a modern data center slash mainframe. And you and I've talked, I need mobile devices. I need to be able to describe that in, in that type of capability and say, now, what are some of the other environmental factors? Well, I need a multi-security level. I think that's also something that people are wrestling. And, and I'll, I'll say, I need multiple security level, and I need multiple privacy level. There's some data I want to share out there with everybody. There's other data that I want to be restrictive, both because that's the law and because of the mission requirement. That's hard to put in the contract. And, and you said something I think that was really smart when we were talking about this. We're used to writing these contracts in terms of I'm going to write this for a secret environment. It's going to be on-prem. It's going to be managed by the government. And, you know, today, I need that to all be options in the contract that lets me pick it. And that's, that is hard, I think, for the contract officers and the people writing these contracts. We, we, we just don't, we don't train it as well, I think, as we need to. And I think, I think that's all evolving. I mean, I do think we're seeing an evolution. I think we will see the contracts get better and better. I think it is going to slow some things down this summer as some of these big contracts move. But I think after that, we'll see it. We'll start moving faster. And, and I, I will say this. I am seeing the government reach into industry more and more to ask, hey, how do I get this? How do I get here? And I think that's that's really good. All right. I, please understand, I don't mean to belittle or denigrate the folks who are doing this work. It's uh, You're right. I know, uh, just as an outsider looking in, it's tremendously hard. It is not easy at all. But it does strike me that as we continue to see the same stuff happen, the same protests happen for the same reasons, 
I wonder if maybe there's some kind of agreement we can come to that we should do it differently. Right. So let me say two things to that. One, your reputation, you don't ever have to worry about somebody thinking you're just trying to cut in federal. You have been outstanding in your support and asking the critical questions. And I do think there's a critical question you're asking. I also think that there are better ways that we could be learning lessons learned. I I do think we've got to incorporate that into this. And I think if I was going to say today where I might spend across the federal bureaucracy is how do I share this contract lessons learned better? I mean, we, it's still hard for us to do that. We share it within the agency. How do we get that interagency and how do we get that up to a, a, a more federal level? And frankly, I'd even raise up a level to say, how do I get that to more government wide? So it would include both federal and state, because I see them. We see a lot of the same common problems across the debate. Terry, you make me think every single time that you come on the program. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you again. Francis, thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You can read more about the CIOSP4 contract and some of the other contracting vehicles in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Defense Department has its first Chief Data and Artificial Intelligence Officer. Craig Martell will join the Pentagon from Lyft, where he was the head of machine learning. Bob Work is president and owner of Teamwork LLC. He's former Deputy Secretary of Defense and former co-chair of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Bob, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you take away from the creation of this office, the appointment of Craig Martell, the consolidation of some of these functions, all of that inside the office of the Secretary of Defense? Welcome, Bob. Uh, it's great to be here, Francis, and thank you for having me. Um, The CDAO is exciting. It's the third kind of stage in the evolution of the Department of Defense's move towards becoming a world-class digital and AI enterprise. The first stage was with the uh, formation of the JIC, the Joint AI Center. Um, And that was a good first step, but I think most people would say it didn't accomplish a lot when it first stood up. It didn't have a lot of resources, it didn't have a lot of people, etc. The second stage was when uh, Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks added a chief data officer to the mix uh, with the assumption that all of these new machine learning algorithms that the department was pursuing would need to have quality data. So it made sense to have a chief data officer to start collecting data throughout the department, figuring out if it's useful what would it have to what would we have to do to change it to be useful and then this third stage the cdao and it uh i think you said chief data and uh, ai officer chief digital and ai officer because uh, secretary hicks has this more expansive vision of a digital dod and so what it did is it consolidated the cdo the chief data officer it consolidated the Jake, the Joint AI Center, another organization called DDS, the Defense Digital Service. Think of that as a digital SWAT team that if you're having problems with software, these are really highly skilled software people that can come in and tell you this is what you need to do to fix it. Um, and so it's all under one organization now. The Jake will go away 
replaced by the CDAO. And as you said, Craig Martels, he is the AI, the chief machine learning officer at Lyft. So they're bringing in someone from the commercial sector, uh, which I think is a great idea because everybody knows that uh, most of the excitement is coming from the commercial sector. Uh, And then the deputy CDAO is going to be a long-serving government service uh, servant by the name of Margie Palmieri. And she has worked on the Navy side of the digital equation, knows all of the people, is going to be a great uh, second to uh, Craig Martels. So I'm very excited about this, uh, Francis. I think it rationalizes a lot of different pieces. People now will say, okay, I'm starting to understand what we're trying to do. So uh, the full it's supposed to be fully operational capable by the 1st of June. So right now it's in what is called IOC, Initial Operating Capability. So they're moving steadily towards full operational capability when Craig comes aboard, and then off they go. I appreciate the correction because I made the same mistake when I was talking to John Sherman about this that I made in talking to you about it. So I'm going to repeat it so that I get it right. Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer is the consolidation of these organizations. You said, Bob, a moment ago, most of the excitement is coming in technology from the private sector. What's the key to grafting that excitement into the Defense Department if that's the case today? Wow, that is a great question. You know, Ash Carter, when he came back, he when he left as deputy secretary, he went to the West Coast and was uh, on the West Coast in Silicon Valley for a year. And when he came back as the secretary of defense, he said, look, if we want to maintain our technological edge, we are going to have to um, plug in to the commercial sector because that's where all of the true innovation in uh, artificial intelligence bio uh synthetic biology quantum computing all of that is happening in the commercial sector and we would be crazy if we don't exploit it so we have been trying to do that since ash carter was the secretary of defense and i think if you talk with most of the people outside the department they would say well the department's got a little better but they're still so hard to work with you know the contracting is just crazy um, so having somebody from a uh, commercial sector like Craig, who knows the commercial side and knows all of the player, he immediately will bring some credentials to them that they will say, okay, this is somebody I can talk to, uh, and tell it our problem. Uh, but in the meantime, it's just the hard work at the con level, making sure that actually have contracts with the commercial sector, that uh, we really um, listen to them. And it's a work in progress. So I don't have a perfect answer for you, Francis. Uh, I just have a sense that um, after, you know, in this third stage, it's going to get better. What continues to drive that momentum? What has to happen in order for that third stage to, to fulfill the potential that you see in it, Bob? Well, I think in the first stage, when the Jake was first formed, 
Jake was put under the CIO, the Chief in uh, Information Officer, and it was one step removed from the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And if you want to really push something in the department, a transformation, those they don't happen on their own. You know, they have to have some top-down push and some bottom-up work. And when though both of those are working together, it's the best combination. But uh, when the Jake was first formed, it didn't really have, in my view, uh, very much support from the senior leaders in the department. That all started to change when Deputy Secretary Hicks joined. Um, she said, look, uh, I'm going to create the CDAO. She created the AI and Data Accelerator Program, which is money that we can use to send teams to the combatant commanders to say, what kind of data do you have? What problems do you have? Let's figure out how we use this data to help solve your problems with AI algorithms. And so uh, Deputy Secretary Hicks has been very active in this space, and it's been great to see. And then she had this conception of the CDAO, which just takes it one step further. And I believe, I don't know exactly how much money is now associated with the CDAO, but it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. They, they have the resources, Congress is supporting them. They are supported directly uh, by the Deputy Secretary of Defense. So that is why I am so confident that things are going to move forward. If the CDAO office is the third step in this evolution that you're describing, is there a fourth step or are we at the destination? And if there's a fourth step, what could that potentially be? I always think that this is a continual evolution. The end point is a world-class AI and digital enterprise, a Department of Defense that is world-class, that is the best in software, the best in algorithms, the best in data. So it's always going to be an evolution with different stages. So uh, this, I think it provides the foundation for that endpoint. Uh, and as I said, I'm, I'm more optimistic now than I've been in the last three years. I, I really believe that the Department of Defense is on the right track here. How do we look at this three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, or maybe none of those measures are the right measures? But how do we look at this at some point in the future and say, yes, this accomplished what we wanted to accomplish, or maybe we need to rethink this or redirect it? I think five or 10 years from now, if we look back and there is a proliferation of algorithms that are being used at the combatant command level, at the intelligence agencies, at, uh, in the service headquarters to help them build their programs, will say, okay, we got this right. Because right now, there's a lot of activity going on in the services, Francis. You know, there's experiments, there's demonstrations, and there's all sorts of, hey, we got this really neat thing. Look, we have this new autonomous vehicle. But we haven't seen algorithms used at scale yet. So when you start to see algorithms used at scale, that's when you know that you're really cooking. In this regard, these ADA teams, one of the things Deputy Secretary Hicks said is, look, I am going to designate the combatant commanders as the primary customer of the CDAO. These are the guys and gals who are going to tell me 
how do I need, how can I use AI to help me be a better warfighter? And so we now have a specific customer that is going to be the pull uh, for this. Uh, we have teams that are going out to the customers to say, show us your data. Tell us what you have. And let's get it together and make it in a, a way that we can use it in algorithms. So, um, you know, having a customer is really important uh, for an organization like CDAO, because otherwise they're just servicing everybody. It's, you know, it's like the soccer or soccer kids going to the ball. Um, so, as I said, I think you can see how everything is coming together now. Bob Work, great insight as always. Thank you very much for joining me today. It's been great to be back, and uh, I hope you're well. You can read more about the new leader of the CDAO office at the Pentagon in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on whatever device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put it together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow afternoon. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Francis Rose.